Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. Yeah, I'm on staff uh, with CC, and I go to church here on Sundays, uh, HCC. If you don't have a home church, we'd love to have you and serve you here. Um, And I want you all to know that I don't stand up here tonight because I've achieved some exceptional level of morality uh, or because I have everything in my life figured out. Um, I'm going to be talking about a pretty complex topic tonight um, that, that drives a lot of the Christian life and I just want to assure you that I struggle with this every day. Um, And so often God uses the weak to show his strength, and I am no exception to that rule. Um, So I just want to take a minute and pray for uh, God to be with us and guide us in the time together. God, I just thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. Um, God, I thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. God, I thank you that you didn't leave us where we were with uh, no way to you. Um, but God, that you sent Jesus. So we just want to worship in that tonight and praise you. And we ask that you'll be with us in this time and, and use um, me by the grace of your spirit in spite of myself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so I want to take a minute to talk about paradoxes. Um, paradoxes are things that seem contradictory but actually work together. And we all accept that there are paradoxes in life, and we accept uh, the reality of paradoxes pretty early in life. Um, So when you were young, you almost certainly read or heard about the story of the universe-altering race between the rabbit and the turtle. And what happens in the race is that the slower animal actually wins the race. And it's funny, but that is a valuable lesson that's actually supposed to teach you about the paradox of life. That we often get caught up in the here and now, but if we would just slow down and um, if we would just slow down and take the time to think a little bit like an endurance runner, we would in the end actually be much further ahead. And in the Christian life, there are many paradoxes, um, and we could take a surface level approach to the Bible and just say, "Oh, look how the Bible contradicts itself. It's stupid." Um, Or we could actually take the time, like we often do in our studies in school, to learn about the complex realities and how they actually all work together uh, to form one idea, as long as things are held in their right tension. And tonight we will be talking about one of the greatest paradoxes in the Bible. It will be hard work to understand, but it will be one of the most rewarding truths you will ever know. And it will lead you to treasure Christ if you see it right. The paradox of grace. So how do we define grace? In the Bible we see grace as that which allows God to pardon us, but beyond that as that which enables us. So you may logically conclude that if grace pardons us, then we don't need to do much of anything. But that is the exact opposite of the biblical reality of grace. And tonight we'll see how grace both pardons and empowers our Christian life. And thus we have the paradox. So after 18 years of trying to know God, this truth set me free. 
I lived 18 years trying to work my way to God, trying to find satisfaction and anything that I could get my hands on, like living like that fast rabbit, just running and running as fast and as hard as I could in every direction. And then the grace of God was presented to me. The grace of God as the Bible teaches. And my whole life was flipped on its head. Finally, I saw the treasure of Christ and my life has never been the same. I still struggle every day with having a right view of grace and I fail often. But God continues to grow me. He continues to give his grace to me. And that's the aim of this text tonight. That we see grace and learn to live with the right view of it. And there's one way that we see grace in that way, and it's through the gospel. So as a recap, in Ephesians chapter 1, Dustin helped us see that God gives us blessings. And those blessings allow us to be obedient. We don't obey God to earn his blessings. Instead, we are blessed by him, and so we are able to obey. And as you see God's goodness, and you see your own brokenness, the question you will rightly ask is how? How could God possibly bless me? And answering that question will be our aim for tonight. So if I had to title a sermon, if you're taking notes, I would title it, How Can We Partake and Abide in the Blessings of God? Paul will start things out kind of, kind of rough for us at the beginning of chapter 2. He's going to make sure that we remember exactly who we are, that we see ourselves as broken people. And if we truly see Jesus as the standard and ourselves as broken, the only natural question that will follow is how could God bless me? And the answer is by his grace alone. Now you've heard the word grace before. You've heard people name grace. You've heard all kinds of stuff about grace. You've heard probably Oprah Winfrey talk about grace. If you don't know, this is a little tagline. I always make a little shock. The Oprah Winfrey when I'm talking. Um, but in our culture, we define grace very differently than the Bible does. Uh, biblical grace is the foundation of knowing the blessings of God. And so we need to know how the Bible defines grace, if that's what we're hoping in. And I think you'll find that the definition of grace is quite paradoxical. But it's worth taking the time to understand. So here we go. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What does it mean we were dead? Well, this takes us back to Genesis. God created us and he created us to be in a relationship with him. We knew and enjoyed him and his creation perfectly. He made the whole world around us so that we could see his character. That's the entire point of creation, is to real, reveal the creator. But we disobeyed God and we decided to treasure creation more than the creator. And this broke our relationship with God. He gave us the parameters of the relationship and we broke them. That is what sin is. And there's no middle ground here. We don't, we don't get to say, well, I don't want to be for God, but I also don't want to be against him. He is king, and we are either for him or we are against him. Look at verse 2. If you are walking in sin, you are following the prince of the power of the air. And that term refers to Satan. 
And if you're not sure about that, 1 John 5.19 is a cross-reference that will be helpful for you to uh, be sure of that if, if you're taking notes. So the point is that there's no middle ground. Either you honor God or you honor the prince of this world. Because of all this sin, all of creation is broken. It is no longer the perfect form. We separate, we experience suffering. We are separated from the one thing that we are truly made for, God. It's as if a fish was tossed out onto the land because it said, I don't want to be a fish. And now it's flopping around gasping for air. We are all dead in our sins. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What does it mean that we were storing up wrath? Well, sin is a great insult to God, and He is the greatest joy and the authority in the universe. And since He is a just God, He can't allow us to declare anything other than Him as king and put something else in his place. In the end, the prince of this world will not win. God will rule and this is war. You are either for him or you are for the prince of this world. So I want to clarify this a little bit because this is tr crucial for you to be able to process brokenness in your own life. If we were really created for God, and if he really is the greatest thing and the greatest joy in the world, <clears throat> then allowing anyone to worship anything other than him is cruel because they can never actually be fulfilled in that. So God allows good things to happen in this world so that we would be pointed to the good creator of all of it. And he allows bad things to happen in this world so that we will know that the things of creation can never fill the place of the creator. God's wrath is being stored up against sin, and His righteous judgment is coming. All these things are marks of God's grace, calling us to true life and away from sin, so that we may enjoy the blessings of God instead of the wrath of God. So we are dead. God's wrath is going to punish sin. What can we do? And the answer is nothing. And, and that's, that's meant to leave you feeling a bit hopeless. We have broken his parameters. He requires perfection. And we, the imperfect, no matter how good we think we can become, are never going to be perfect again on our own. If you really believe this, you should be just in an absolute tailspin right now. You should be saying, what now? What's the point? There's no hope. Then and only then, when you, when you feel that brokenness, when you see Jesus for who he is, and when you see how hopeless you are, then verses 4 through 10 can ring life into your dead soul. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
So if you, have you ever wondered why we like hero stories so much? I mean, DC and Marvel are some of the best-selling books, comics, movies that there are. And honestly, for decades, uh, these guys have just been making movies that are virtually the exact same. I mean, there's some group of people that are in danger, they're going to be killed off, and there seems like there's no hope for the situation. Then boom, out of nowhere, a character just emerges, often from humble beginnings, but not always. And then through some crazy circumstances, right when you think the hero is defeated, something happens and he wins. He beats the bad guys. The people who thought they were doomed are free. Until they need more money and make an next movie. But we love those kinds of stories because deep down we all know that this is our reality. We need something bigger than ourselves to accomplish what really needs done. And that is what is happening here. Verses 1 through 3, we see that we are doomed. And this verse 4 comes and says, But God, boom, he wrote, introduced. And those words are so sweet, but only if you know how doomed you are to start with. God makes us alive with Christ. So how did God accomplish this? God accomplished this by a great cost. The cost of Christ. Two ways that God made us alive together with Christ. One, He made us alive by Christ. He sent His only Son, Jesus, to the earth to live a perfect life, the life we were supposed to live and failed to do. Then Jesus died the death that we were supposed to die in my place and your place. The cost was great. It meant the torture of the perfect son, but beyond the physical torture, it meant all this wrath that we've been storing up against God and all the wrath that we will store up against God would be dumped on his own son. The cost was great. Then Jesus rose from the dead, showing that he holds the authority over life and death. Death does not win. The enemy loses. You cannot hold him. His people will be free. That's what Christ did. The second way that he made us alive together with Christ. He, as we saw in chapter 1, seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places. So now, instead of being the enemy of God, with his wrath set against us, we know God like Jesus does. We know God as our hero, except this hero isn't some stoic, faraway figure who just comes when we need him. This hero is one that desires an intimate relationship with you. This is what the Bible means when it says you are alive with Christ. Why did God do this? If we see ourselves rightly as the enemies of God, and we see God rightly as just and worthy of all praise, the natural question is why? Why would God do this? That he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God did this so that we might know his character. Because of the great love with which he loved us, he wanted us to get to experience the gracious side of him and not the wrathful side of him. Because he is a good and kind God. And the one and only way is through Jesus. If you reject Jesus, then you will know the wrath of God and you will not experience his grace. 
there's one way that a God, just God, can perform such a great act of kindness toward his enemies. And the reason that the gospel is good news is that God made the redeeming of his glory and the path to our joy one path. And that is what grace is. Verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not the result of works so that no one may boast. So there is nothing you can do for yourself. But grace steps in and God accomplishes what we never could. First you have to recognize that you are hopelessly in need of something outside yourself. And Paul wants to make this absolutely clear. This is not your own doing. So that no one may boast, not a result of works. Secondly, you must place your faith in Jesus. <coughs> You've been saved through faith. You see yourself. And you see Christ rightly. How broken you are. And then you look and see hope for the bright and broken life in Christ. You see a way to get to know the blessings and the joy of God. And the only way to enjoy God's blessings is through grace accomplished by Jesus. When you see Jesus like this, you see him as the great treasure in the field that he is. Matthew 13 verse 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Faith is when you see Jesus as the treasure and believe in him instead of yourself. I love this. Do you, do you know why the streets of heaven are paved with gold? It's not because we're supposed to be excited about the gold. The fact that the streets are gold is exciting because in heaven we will be so excited about Jesus that we will drop everything we once thought was most valuable in the dirt and trample over it to get closer to Jesus. It's a picture of just how precious he is. And getting to know Jesus like this instead of knowing his wrath is grace. Grace is the how. How we can enjoy God's blessings. Grace can be defined as simply as getting what we don't deserve. What we must know to understand grace is that it's not anything that we have to offer. Paul says that this is not your own doing. And what Paul is making absolutely clear is that grace is due to the goodness of Jesus, not your goodness. You must understand that to understand grace. And this may be hard to hear at first, but it is actually incredibly empowering. God set his affections on us when we were still sinners because of his goodness. So every time we screw up, we don't sit there in a panic thinking about all the things we have to do to earn back the favor of God. No, he still loves us because Christ still sits at his right side and we are still seated with Christ in the heavenly places. His grace is sufficient, period, nothing else. That is incredibly free. His grace is sufficient, despite our sin. 
we are able to continue enjoying God despite our sin, and that is grace. And then obedience. What is what is the end? Um, what is the end section of verses like this? Obedience is the natural response of a person who has experienced grace. If we really believe that Jesus is the most precious thing that there is, then absolute pursuit of him and his ways are the only natural response. However, this can be easy to get confused. I want to say that morality is not the chief end of Christianity. This is really important for our culture, right? This Bible Belt culture we live in. Morality is not the chief end of Christianity. That is the chief end of religion. But that is not the chief end of Christianity. Excuse me, fake religion. Our chief aim is to know God. And if that is our chief aim, then the only logical outcome in our knowing of God is that we are obedient to His ways. We don't accomplish our salvation by being obedient. We are obedient because we know God. We acknowledge that His way is better. And that will bring true joy. And so we obey. And here is exactly where we must hold a right view of both the pardoning of our sin and the empowering of our obedience as one fluid thing called grace. And this is our paradox. Grace is not cheap. See, grace covers our sins and it drives us to stop sinning. It drives us to obedience. And this is the paradox of grace and what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls costly grace. I don't have time to go into who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, but if you've never read his story, take the time to do that this week. Bonhoeffer said, That which costs God much cannot cost us little. Grace is not cheap. Grace is costly because it calls a man to die to himself. The call is to follow Jesus before everything else. There's a reason that Jesus says we must carry our cross daily. And the cross is a sign of a torture device, extreme suffering. We can't live like there's nothing different. He died so that we can live like God made us to live. And that means that we have to kill the desires of the flesh, the desires that go against God's way of life. That is hard, especially in our current culture, where the motto is to just do what feels right. Christians do not just do what feels right. We fight and kill our wrong desires so that we can have the true treasure of Jesus. It will cost you everything. It will cost you your life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only real life he can ever have. Remember the parable of the treasure in the field. We give up our fleshly desires and we gain the true treasure. And every time we screw up, every time we do that same sin... And we think, no way God still loves me. There's no way I blew it. We look at the cross. We see grace. We are pardoned from our past junk and we are pardoned from our future junk. Jesus died because we couldn't earn it. And Jesus died because we couldn't keep it. And so we still get to enjoy God. And that breaks the heart of the true believer. I don't know if you've ever sinned, like, done something that you immediately know, no joke, is, is pretty bad. And then the next 
breath, God just dumps his blessings on you. And you think, what have I done? How can I treat my Savior like this? And you're broken. Yet his grace empowers you. You both partake in and abide in the blessings of God because of grace. Grace is real life and what we're all searching for. But let me be crystal clear. I'm not saying that if you give up these fleshly desires that you'll get the house on the hill and be driving a Jaguar and somehow luckily like me have a hot wife because you're doing what's right. I'm saying that you're willing to let go of all those things to get to know Jesus. The treasure in the field isn't the gold in a house with a white picket fence. The treasure is Jesus. Whether or not you have those things, the most important thing is Jesus. This is one of the greatest paradoxes in the Bible. It's the rabbit and the turtle. And the devil loves a person who lives on one extreme or the other and ignores exactly how these things work together. If we forget about the side of grace that says you must die, then we live without caring about sin. We, we spit on the cross. This rejects Jesus because it doesn't show that Jesus is greater than anything else in this world. It just hold on, holds on to the world and just slaps a Bible sticker on it. We, we have the, the fish on our car, but we don't care about cussing the person out that just cut us off. Or if we forget the side of grace that says you can do nothing to achieve your life, it is by grace alone that we get legalistic. This is my tendency every day. And we try to earn our way to God and say, God, look how good I am. I'm sure you want me on your team, right? This rejects Jesus because it rejects his finished work by boasting about our work. The only way that actually represents Christ is through costly grace. The grace that says I can never earn it, yet I have it. And it is the greatest treasure in my life that comes before everything. Biblical grace does not lead a man to sit down because he is sinful or lazy. It leads him to death because it will give him the only real life he's ever had. Our current living does not accomplish our life. It merely proves if we are alive or dead. And that is the gospel. <coughs> there we have our paradox. You are truly free to fully enjoy Christ. And we fully enjoy Christ through obedience. So the very thing which pardons us is the same thing which empowers us. And we are empowered to fully enjoy God through obedience. Bonhoeffer defined cheap grace as the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace, Bonhoeffer said, is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, and grace without Jesus Christ living in a garden. Bonhoeffer knew grace. He knew what was at stake when it came to a right understanding of grace. If we don't understand and live in true grace, we will fail at truly glorifying God. And thus, verse 10. For we are His workmanship. Verse 10. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. His glory. This is why chapter 1 comes before chapter 2. We must know that Jesus came to die, and that was the only option if we were to know this type of grace. This is how we partake and abide in his blessings. The seriousness of the cost that is displayed at the cross shows us the seriousness of sin, and it shows us the seriousness of the good works that God has for us to do. So Jesus paid the great price to free you to life. And this new life is one that is made to display the supreme worth of God. The supreme worth of God should be displayed in every aspect of the real Christian's life. When our life looks perfect and everything is going good for us, we display the supreme worth of God by not holding on to those things, but allowing them to point us to our good God and teaching others about His goodness through those good things. When our life is horrible, when everything is falling apart, we look to God and we live with joy and peace because He is the unshakable treasure. And we are reminded and we remind those around us that the things of this life are never lasting and that our hope is in something greater. And so we say with Paul in Philippians 4, 12 and 13, <coughs> whether I have much or little, I have learned to be content, for I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We get the joy, God gets the glory. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So those of you who are in Christ, some of you are experiencing a season where things look pretty good. And I just want to challenge you, refuse to find your hope and security in those things. Live with open hands. Don't hold on to those things. Hold on to Jesus. And allow those good things to remind you of the good creator who made them. For others, life kind of does suck right now. Things aren't going all that well. And you're not sure what you're going to do next. You're anxious. You're not sure how school's going to turn out. You're scared to death. Your friends have just bailed on you. And you feel alone. Look to Jesus. Hear the call to follow him. But... Be, and be reminded that everything in this life will eventually break and disappoint you. But there is lasting life in Christ. His grace is sufficient. And the real treasure in the field is not those things that are falling apart, but it is Jesus. Let the rest fall away, but hold on to Christ. Jesus is all in all. He is truly the beginning and the end. We get the blessings. He gets the glory. God could have just gotten the glory. He could have just destroyed sin and mankind with it. He could have merely proved himself as great and just and not to be toyed with. But God, because of his mercy and kindness, his character, instead provided life. Out of his goodness, he allowed us. <clears throat> out of his goodness, he allowed us to have the deepest joy possible himself. There's a call that goes out to every person in this room tonight. It goes out to the person who's already following Jesus and it goes out to the person who has up to this point rejected Jesus. 
The call comes from the mouth of God and it's very, it is a very clear call. And the call is come and follow me. As the band comes back up, <coughs> if you know God, remember the call to life. Remember the costliness of grace. God would not stop in his good, kind pursuit of you. You have not been called to just sit back and relax. You have been called to die that you may live. And that Jesus is glorified. This was the point of the cross and this is the point of the new life. And if you have in your life up to this point rejected Jesus. If you don't know God, you are storing up God's wrath. You are declaring by your life that God is not great. And that the prince of this world is great. He will not overlook this. But please, hear me out. The deepest horror of this call for you is that you're missing, missing out on the treasure of Jesus. You're missing actual and true life. You think that your way is going to satisfy you, but it never does. And that's because you weren't created to worship the creation. You were created to worship the creator. Come and see Jesus as the treasure in the field. This great paradox of the reality worth understanding and living in. Jesus is the treasure that is worth selling everything for. And tonight, for the very first time, you see Jesus that way. Please come talk to me or any other CC staff. We'd, we'd love to help you see Christ in that way and to help you experience true life. Let's pray. God, we are able to pray because of Jesus. God, we, we have would have no way to approach your throne and pardon you and, and petition you if it weren't for Jesus. God, we thank you that he accomplished your grace. God, that your grace allows us to partake and abide in the blessings of life, God, and that the true treasure is a treasure that will never end. God, a joy that will never stop, a peace that will never leave us. So God, I, I beg you, let those who have rejected you Never be satisfied in anything but you, God. Show them your glory. God, and bring them to repentance as they see their brokenness in light of the beauty of Christ. For those of us who know you, Lord, we ask that we be strengthened by your grace. God, that we remember the call to Christ, the call to follow, and the call to our, the deepest joy there is. Jesus, and we are able to pray. Amen.